Hello, everybody. Glenn here at the top of the show with a call to action. When we started Clay Temple Media three years ago now, 2017, and at any rate, I guess that was three years ago, we were not really sure that anyone would be interested. And in fact, Brandon said something along the lines of, this is a show that 30 people will want to listen to and we're two of them. We have been really surprised and, and really lucky to have such a robust listenership, a, a lively forum, and extraordinarily generous Patreon support. And we've grown our audience across the network to a little over a thousand listeners to each of our shows. But this year, 2020, we would really like to grow that audience even more. In fact, we've got our eye on doubling that number in order to keep our podcast going for the long term. Now, we're doing some things on our end. There's going to be at least one new show this year, and we are even looking at advertising in some SF magazines. But we'd like your help, too. And we're going to incentivize that, of course. And what we would like you to do is review our podcasts. The more reviews we have, the more likely then we are to show up in a, a search on some kind of podcast app and to be recommended to people browsing that app for a new podcast. I mean, we think Elder Sign is at least the 10th best podcast that discusses H.P. Lovecraft. But if you search for Lovecraft in Apple Podcasts, we will never show up because we just don't have enough reviews. And we'd like to change that. And we'd like to change that for all of our shows. So, all right, what are you going to get in return for writing reviews, which we know is a task that no one actually wants to do? Well, we're going to give away some prizes. We're going to give away three prizes. In fact, one of them is a free bonus episode on a story or a topic of your choice. The second one is going to be a free nomination on an upcoming Patreon vote. I mean, even if you aren't a Patreon supporter, you can still nominate something to a vote. And the other option here is going to be a free trade paperback book inscribed by us, dedicated to you, thanking you for your help. And the first winner gets to choose and so on. On top of all of that, on top of those three individual prizes, we're going to do something for everybody, which is that if we get to 100 reviews on any of our five or six shows during this period, we will do a bonus episode of that show. So potentially five bonus episodes coming your way this summer. We're going to run this bumper here in February, also in March, and then again in April. You're going to get real sick of hearing it. And then in early May, as soon as my grades are in, I'm going to draw some names from a hat and pick three winners. And the way you get your name in the hat, this metaphorical internet hat, of course, you get your name in the hat for each review that you write. So if you review each of our five shows on the app you use, that's five entries in the hat. And if you go wild and review each of the shows on apps you don't even use, you can get even more entries. So the more you do, the more reviews you write, the greater your chances of winning are. And then you can just let us know by the end of April how many entries you get. You can send us a screenshot or just make a list, whatever you'd prefer. Uh, you can do that at our email, which is claytemplemedia at gmail.com. Or you can message us on Patreon if you're a Patreon supporter. Or you can message us on Twitter. I mean, we're, we're findable, right? If you know how to use the internet, we're findable is what I'm saying. Uh, and by the way, if you have already written a review, and, and many of you have, and thank you so much for that, obviously, we're going to count that here in terms of getting your name in the hat and towards that 100 review goal. And so then we'll do the drawing. And if you're one of the three winners, we'll be in touch with you about that. And we're very excited to work with someone on crafting a, a special bonus episode. Those special bonus episodes, those commissioned episodes, that is really one of our favorite things to do because it, it lets us work together with a, a listener in, in coming up with ideas for shows to do. And then we're going to do this all over again later this year to encourage some social media sharing. But that is for another long and, uh, I'm sorry, tedious bumper uh, in the future. But all right, you are all awesome for helping us out. We really do appreciate it. 
But now let's actually get to the show that you came here to listen to. Hello, and welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buda. This episode, we are beginning our coverage of Wolfe's novella Tracking Song, which was originally published in the collection In the Wake of Man in 1975. We read it, though, in the Island of Dr. Death and Other Stories and Other Stories uh, short story collection, which is, if we haven't said it already, one of the greatest American short story collections you can purchase. Yeah, a prized a prized gem in my uh, my collection of books for sure. And we're going to be on this one. We're going to be on this story for quite a while. We'll explain that scheme in just a moment. But before we do that, we want to announce some changes that we've made to our Patreon goals because we heard from a number of supporters that they would really like us to have more goals that are smaller uh, and therefore then also not quite so far apart from each other, which will help the, the benefits that you get as a patron grow a little bit more quickly, which is uh, a lot of fun, more exciting. We think that's a great idea. And so uh, we've added three goals, only $50 apart from each other. And so what we're hoping to do is to add some extra seasonal themed Patreon episodes to October, November, and December, meaning, you know, Halloween episodes, Christmas episodes, and then for November, more episodes in honor of Remembrance Day, more episodes really about the intersection of speculative fiction and war, which will go along with the annual coverage that we're doing of Gene Wolfe's Letters Home from the Korean War war. And, you know, this is other things like we might do ghost stories at Christmas, uh, Halloween episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer or Star Trek. I mean, really, the possibilities here are endless. It's, you know, kind of a gimmick, a seasonal theme episodes and doing a lot of them to, I don't know, help everyone be in the mood at the right time of year. Uh, We're excited about it. Yeah, I I really can't wait. And the possibilities really are endless. That's part of the fun of doing the Patreon episodes is that we can kind of pick whatever we want. But what we really want is to hear from our listeners about what they want us to cover. And so you get to do that. If you're at the $2 level right now and you go up to the $5 level, you'll have more opportunities to vote and it'll help us reach these goals faster. And also, if you are a Patreon supporter and you like what you do, uh, tell your friends to check out our podcast and consider joining us on Patreon so we can really reach these goals and get to you more content because it's what we love to do and we hope you love it as well and we want to share more with you yeah we'd be really excited to make these extra episodes here these seasonal episodes a part of our yearly schedule but i think on the topic of schedules we should actually talk about our scheme here for tracking song and and then we should get into it so what we're going to do are five recap episodes because this is a long novella and then we're going to do a discussion episode kind of wrapping everything in. In this episode, our first recap episode, we're reading up to page 179. Again, that's in the Island of Dr. Death and Other Stories and Other Stories collection. So without further ado, let's just get going, Glenn. You're you're doing the recaps here. I sure am. And, and this story, like I guess most stories, it really starts with some characteristic wolfishness namely an epigraph. And this one is from the Aeneid, which of course we've seen Wolf borrow from before. Here I'm thinking of David's joke about arms back in the fifth head of Cerberus. But here's what Wolf has here at the beginning of Tracking Song. Now is the seventh winter since Troy fell, and we still search beneath unfriendly stars, through every sea and desert isle for Italy's retreating strand. And this is book five, it's uh, lines 626 to 629, except... It isn't. This is not what Virgil wrote. There are some 
important, some significant changes here. What Virgil wrote is actually this, and I, I'm g- going to read the Latin first here uh, very badly and not at all metrically, and then I'll, I'll give a, a translation of it here. Septuma post Troiae excidium jam vertitur aestas, cum freda, cum terris omnes, tot inhospita saxa sedereque, immensae ferimer, dum per mare magnum italiam sequimur fugientum, et vovumur undis. And I would render this something more like, Now summer turns for the seventh time since Troy fell. We are carried passing through seas, through all the lands, encountering so many inhospitable rocks and stars, while we follow fleeing Italy across the great sea and are rocked by waves. Now that's a pretty literal and not very poetic, not very good, not very sensitive translation. So here's the translation by a uh, great scholar, great translator, Stanley Lombardo. This is the translation I prefer. It's the one I use in class when I teach the Aeneid. Here's how he does this. Seven summers since the fall of Troy have we been driven on the wind, measuring every sea and land, every inhospitable rock and hostile star, rolling in the waves as we search the ocean for an ever-receding Italy. So the real change here in what Wolf has printed and what Wolf has taken as his epigram is taking summer turns, or even seven summers since, as now it is winter. This clearly seems to ignore autumn. It's not a change that I like, I will say. I don't think that that's the sense of what's going on here in the Latin at all. I don't think that's what Virgil has in mind. And so I wondered what was going on here, right? Where did this change come from and and why? And it turns out that this is not actually Wolf's change. I mean, we know he read in translation anyway, but I think very excitingly, right, this is in fact a change made by C.S. Lewis. This is an epigram that Lewis uses. This is a, a translation that Lewis uses in his book, Pilgrim's Regress. And while, as we are, we're going to see, Wolf has taken something from these lines, right? Winter is important, and so are those unfriendly stars. I think we have to assume that Wolf also was just happened to be reading Pilgrim's Regress around the time that he was writing this. And I wonder if that's going to cue us into anything that we should be looking for as we read this story. And since I've never read Pilgrim's Regress, and you, Brandon, are the one who always brings up C.S. Lewis here. I know it's usually the Space Trilogy, but you're the one who always brings up C.S. Lewis. I'm hoping you might have some insights here. Uh, uh, I'm sure that we'll also want to revisit this at the end when we have the whole story. We are absolutely going to have to revisit this decision to use a C.S. Lewis translation of the Aeneid. And that's because C.S. Lewis only translated bits and odds and ends of the Aeneid. One scholar, at least, has written a book about Lewis's Aeneid translation, Though it's very difficult to get a hold of, and uh, I didn't have an extra $80 or so to spend on it. Uh, But I'm sure that they have written something about this line. But what I read about the book and kind of what's going on here, my guess is that C.S. Lewis changed the season in his translation because he was writing in such a way to evoke to a contemporary audience, what is going on in the poem or maybe the struggle of the time to get to Italy. So if it's seven years and there are all four seasons to emphasize the struggle of the, you know, the voyagers here, the people on the journey, C.S. Lewis probably changed it to winter rather than summer to emphasize the challenge rather than just sticking to the Latin, if that makes any sense. That's my guess, because where it shows up in Pilgrim's Regress, which I'll talk about in just a moment, doesn't really have a lot to do with the winter. It does a little bit. There, 
the characters of that book, John, the main one, and Pilgrim's Regress is, of course, a response in some way to the Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, is journeying west towards this uh, place that has spoken to his deepest desire. And he goes off track and he goes north where it's cold. And then this shows up as he's kind of heading south. So it's warming up a little bit. But it's not super crucial that it's winter, even in the way that C.S. Lewis used it. The important thing is that Italy is the object of desire for these people and that the journey towards that, the holding that desire that's maybe larger than you can contain or have a full understanding of, uh, and a desire that the experience of which won't diminish the pleasure of having the desire itself is what's important to C.S. Lewis in using this passage. And I think that's also important to Wolf in the way he's writing the story and what he's thinking about with the great sleigh. So so I'll just say a little bit about the Pilgrim's Regress here because I think these points will help us read the tracking song in some ways. Pilgrim's Regress is an allegorical allegorical story like Pilgrim's Progress. It was written in 1933. It was C.S. Lewis's first fictional work and it's about, as I said, a man's journey towards the beauty offered ultimately uh, in Lewis's sense by the Christian vision of paradise and the obstacles found along the way of attaining that paradise, both the ethical, ideological and carnal obstacles that one faces, particularly in the 20th century. So Lewis is trying to update the Pilgrim's Progress and this book now comes with an introduction that was written by C.S. Lewis 10 years after the fact. And Lewis is really critical of himself in this book. He thinks he's too bitter and cynical and too obscure and too haughty. And he, he hasn't quite mastered kind of his speaking to the masses that he did later on in his career with books like Mere Christianity, which was a series of radio addresses before it was a book, and his works for children, like the Chronicles of Narnia. But he does go into great detail in this introduction about senses of the word romance or romantic in relation to, uh, you know, that as a literary genre. Some of that does apply here to Tracking Song. You know, there's the adventure story and there's uh, love, uh, potentially love affair and and there's a quest and and all of that stuff and so the those senses of the literary genre of romance are to be found in wolf's tracking song and if you read this introduction and the seven senses of romance that lewis gives it's definitely on gene wolf's mind but the most important form of romance that lewis is talking about which he tried to communicate in the pilgrim's regress and felt he failed to communicate well is his own private definition of the word that he used as a child and throughout his uh, maybe professional life. And it's the, the importance of longing and yearning for something, the importance of having a desire for some transcendental object and the quest for attaining it, and that the journey itself might be better than the attainment of that object. And that the journey for the object prepares us for what we can attain in the next life. And to me, these are things that are absolutely crucial to what is going on in Tracking Song, which itself is a sort of ethical journey, though it's probably not as allegorical as the Pilgrim's Regress. So that is my spiel on what's going on with this uh, epigraph here. I hope that clarified more than it muddied the waters, but I don't know, Glenn, what do you, what do you think? Did any of that make any sense? 
Well, I mean, you've really just teased, I think, what's going to be the more important way to do this, which is when we get to the discussion episode, to, to sort of read backwards to see if we can really pick out what Wolf was thinking, how Wolf was engaging with Lewis here, which is something I'm very excited about. I mean, I certainly read Narnia when I was a kid. I've read them again as an adult, and I've actually read some of Lewis's scholarship on medieval literature, not really ever in grad school or anything like that, but in, in undergrad, some undergraduate classes that I took, I, I read that stuff. But Lewis is really kind of a big hole, I feel like, in my knowledge of the two things that really matter most to my intellectual life, which is speculative fiction and medieval studies. So I'm really looking forward to having you fill that a, a, a little bit and, and then seeing if we can uh, map this on and seeing how Wolf has engaged with Lewis, which, uh, you know, that's been one of the real fun parts of this podcast is seeing the way in which Wolf is responding to and engaging with this long literary tradition. And we've been seeing him do that a lot here in uh, this batch of stories, but then also, of course, especially in The Fifth Head of Cerberus. And there's going to be more going on here in Tracking Song as we go. So uh, I guess maybe now that we have spent half the episode on just the epigram, <laughs> uh, we can actually get to Wolf's story here. And the story also starts with some characteristic wolfishness. Uh, this story is going to be the first person account of uh, a man who finds himself in a foreign land with no memory of how he got there or even who he is. Now, reading backwards, I don't think we can help but think of Latro from the Soldier series here, but reading forward, reading chronologically, as is the whole purpose of our project, this really looks to me like the first time that Wolf uses this idea, unless it's, you know, in a story that we skipped. And we have skipped about 20 stories, actually, at this point, though we are also beginning to make those up on Patreon. But I want to say that if this is featured in a story that we have skipped, and therefore we just don't know about it, I would love for listeners to come tell us about that on the forum. I think that would be an exciting conversation. But we do also get another storytelling device that Wolf loves to use, which we have definitely seen before, and that is the use of a portable recording device by the narrator. It's how he's telling his story here. It's how we have access to it. Now, we've seen this specifically in IBEM, for example, but of course, this is really just one form of Wolf's tendency to ground his stories, and especially his first-person stories, uh, but to ground them as material objects in the world of the story. And this is one of the elements of Wolf's storytelling telling that I was aware of before we started doing the podcast, but it's it's one that I, I've only really come to love since we started doing the podcast. This is something that I think is just an ingenious, brilliant move that lends so much weight and, and just gravity to his stories and to his speculative worlds. I mean, many of Wolf's stories exist, as you said, Glenn, as artifacts in their own world. In Fifth Head of Cerberus, we have a journal then a book that may potentially be part of an evidence file, then an evidence file. And all of those are objects that could be examined if you happen to find yourself on uh, San Croix. And Trip Trap also is a points in epistolary short story or novella. And, you know, I think what's interesting to me as I was thinking about this storytelling device uh, is that at some point, I feel like Wolf grew suspicious of how those objects in his made-up worlds made it into our world in order to be read by his own contemporary readership and audience. <laughs> and so eventually he devised a plan to have these artifacts cross the boundaries into our real world. And this is what happens in you know, Book of the New Sun and Wizard Knight and, uh, and the Soldier and the Soldier series as well. But Wolf isn't doing that here, though he is layering the level of access that people may have to this recording in his own world. 
And what we get by way of explanation here of why the story is being told in this way is that the narrator is concerned that if he dies and someone from his people come looking for him and, you know, given maybe that they're concerned at all about him, they'll find a record of his last days or at least his days in the wilderness, which is what we're going to get. But it also gives the story uh, this sense of prediction and chronology the narrator does not know what's going to happen the next day he's only telling us what's happened on the day that he's recording the story it's a great device right and this is a device that also allows the narrator to really be an audience surrogate right we don't know about this world either it's going to be a, a totally invented speculative world it's not our real world in any way and by giving the narrator amnesia right by by making the narrator also completely ignorant of this world wolf can tell this story in such a way that he can only dole out what he wants to to us the what he wants us the readers to to have right it puts us on equal footing with that narrator uh this is you know a standard trope actually in speculative fiction but i think that wolf is better at this than almost anybody right so often what will happen in you know a, a fantasy quest for example is you'll just have you know some teenager from an isolated village suddenly now have to start learning everything about the big city or something like that wolf does much better at this i think than than sort of your conventional means of doing this but in this point right so we've said the narrator has amnesia and what this means is that he doesn't even know his name right he really knows nothing but he's not alone right now. He is with some people, and we're going to get to who they are in just a moment. But Wolf here really begins by telling us something about the physical characteristics of our narrator, and so we'll start with that too. So he has a reddish-brown line that stretches across his throat from one ear to the other, and it looks like someone slit his throat, and so the people he's with call him cutthroat. Now, the narrator calls this line a birthmark, but I think that we are going to end up talking about whether that's really what this mark, this line here is when we get to our discussion episode. But he only knows what the people he's with know, and that is that he appeared in the snow just after something they call the Great Slay had passed. And at first he thinks this is a metaphor for a, a snowstorm, but he's come to realize that they're talking about some kind of vehicle. There's nothing metaphorical here. They mean this literally, but it's also not a part of their culture. Their, their great sleigh is a strange thing that they've never seen before. And in fact, they hid from it when it arrived, right? They treated it with suspicion and, and caution. So let's talk about these people, this they that I've been using here. And this is you know how the narrative unfolds here. I'm trying to kind of mirror that as much as possible. But the first thing that we should say is that the narrator is definitely not one of them, not one of these people. They're much taller than he is. I mean, he barely even comes up to their shoulders. But also, they speak a language that is different than the one that he uses to make his recordings, though somehow, and this is maybe never actually explained and will be an important and fun discussion topic, but somehow he understands their language. Now, the second thing we should say is that it is winter, and I mean real winter, not the four months of March that we get here in Philly, but not even the winters that I had growing up in the Great Lakes. We're talking Arctic here. And this is how Wolf shows us these people living in this climate. I'll, I'll quote here. They dress in furs, and their huts are of hides stretched over saplings and plastered with snow. Outside, the wind is blowing more snow, building drifts around the huts. I am lying on furs. The light is a luminous fungus suspended from a rawhide thong and is very dim. And the narrator uses words like tribe and chief for these people, and it's, it's clear that they possess a, a pre-modern level of technology. The survival of the group in this harsh environment depends entirely on finding enough food. And this is a labor that is divided for them along gender lines, right? Men hunt, women gather. 
Now, the narrator, who is being nursed back to health after whatever happened to him, uh, is being nursed back to health by a group of women. He wants to go join the men on their hunt today because he wants to contribute more to the group than he's taking from them. But the women laugh at this because to them, he seems small and also therefore childlike. So instead, he suggests that he could go with the women to gather up herbs and and produce, whatever it is that they're out there gathering. And they think this is hilarious, too, because gathering is not an easier job. It's not any easier than hunting. It requires great knowledge, requires great skill. It also requires a lot of stooping over, which is a real big strain on a person's back. And they just don't think that he looks tough enough for that kind of activity. I'd have to say, this is something I really appreciate about Wolf's world building, this attention to the materiality of people's existences, right? This attention to the, the culture as a response to its environment. Uh, this is something, of course, that we very much saw in a story by John V. Marsh. But there is an important note here about our narrator as well, because the women are also laughing at his clothing because he's wearing coveralls. And this is something that seems silly to them, as we've heard already that they're mostly wearing furs. And all of that, that is the first two pages of this story. And there is a lot packed into this opening, as of course, right? There almost always is with a wolf story. But here's the question that I have at this point, Brandon, is what do you think is going on? And and, and maybe what I really mean is where are we and when are we? And, and really, you know, just based on this first page, what is the setting of this story? Well, I mean, there's a lot going on. And before I get into that, I, I just want to point out the line you mentioned about the women laughing at the narrator. Cutthroat tells them, as you pointed out, that he wants to contribute more food to the group than he eats. And the women laugh and say that he is too young and small to hunt with the men. And when I came across this line during a reread of the story, I began to wonder if he's accurate if he's accurately reporting what the women said or just interpreting their statement about him being too young and small to give back more food than he eats to give it back to the tribe or maybe if he is more food than he will eat there there was like a weird moment when i was reading it where it felt like though this line is written in prose if you would break it up using like uh and jam it or say sort or something like that in a poem it would have this crazy double meaning and we're going to see this issue of maybe this double meaning with the narrator's ability to interpret correctly what everybody's saying or understand the world around him and and that that's the situation we're in as readers really here too i mean this my sense of the opening of this story is that we're dealing with like a desert island adventure story the narrator has some general knowledge about some culture and some world and he can lean on this type of knowledge in order to survive and his knowledge of concepts of life outside of his predicament are present but he has no knowledge of himself and what that means is he's going to be revealed to himself through the actions he takes in this new world he doesn't know what sort of person he is. And this is a trope we see in TV shows, especially especially speculative fiction TV shows all the time. It's the tabula rasa plot, which is like, who am I and how did we get here? And it's a great setup for a way to discover a character's personal ethic. You know, who you were doesn't matter if you're stranded on a desert island. The narrator here has to watch and learn and take the best of the people and how animals survive maybe in this world, he has to take the best from their encounters in order to survive himself. 
Another thing we see that jumps off the page to me is that the clothing he wears are probably synthetic um, because they didn't come from killing any animals, but they also keep him very warm. That's a very interesting note. And the way Wolf kind of subtly drops it in here, I found fascinating. And another thing is, is that Wolf explicitly states in interviews about this story that this is a Stone Age type of tale as well. As you said, it's a primitive culture. So on the surface, we're dealing with Stone Age technologies of which no proof really remains of their existence. And it's also just like in Fifth Head where the actual tools would have maybe rotted away or or the binding agents that would have kept them together and correlated them together have rotted away before we could really investigate them. But it also may be the case that we're just not on Earth. So maybe rather than a, a kind of weird time travel story or an investigation of the past, this is an early civilization on a newly discovered planet. But the language issue is what really bothers me. It's going to be, it's going to be a bee in our bonnet uh, when we get to the discussion, uh, and we're trying to work out just where we are in the world of tracking song and what's going on in the broader environment. So. You're right. That is a lot to put into two pages of a story. Right. But it doesn't actually feel like it because Wolf is such a, a master of, of, of this master of just peppering these these details in almost as if they're not actually details. Right. They're just casual. They're, they're almost reality effects that then only later do we come to realize have some real you know significance to understanding what's going on here. I think you're probably a step ahead of me here on on this first page, because I think when I was just cracking this open and giving my first read to it, my sense at this point was that. This is someone like like an American sailor from like an aircraft carrier or a submarine or something that had been up in the Arctic. I guess that would be more likely a submarine than in that case, I guess, not an aircraft carrier and somehow had gotten off of it and is now uh, with uh, Inuit people or something like that is what's what's going on here. That was really my sense of this. It was that this was actually going to turn out to be some kind of near future story, right, where Wolf is positing some kind of story, you know, after the wrap up of the Cold War, or maybe even something along the lines of what we saw in Feather Tigers after some kind of like ecological catastrophe or something like that. Uh, and but really only based on the fact that you know, he's wearing these coveralls, right? That's that's really what jumped out to me. It was this idea, of course, right? I, when I think of coveralls, I just think of 20th century military. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, I guess I was just thinking this is a, a science fiction story. And so I was thinking about the great sleigh. I mean, my first impression of this great sleigh on these pages, when he says it was like a real thing, it reminded me a lot more of like a UFO, though we get descriptions of it later than it did of... Uh, some other form of technology like an airplane fuselage or something, which is probably what it resembles a lot more in reality, as we'll see. But yeah, I you know, there's obviously lots of precedent for this story to be like a time tunnel type of story or uh, the lost world like Arthur Conan Doyle's Lost World or uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth or anything like that, which, uh, you know, is about an American explorer who mysteriously ends up in another part of another time of Earth. Well, sadly, it is not going to turn out that the great sleigh is Santa's sleigh and that our narrator is an elf who fell off the sleigh, though someone should write that story. I would read that story. <laughs> that would be incredible to to turn this into just an elf journey of, uh, around humans or something. All right. Well, so far, we've really just been talking about the setup, but now we're actually going to get the story going here. The, the women do end up bringing the narrator along when they go gathering, but he's not going to be allowed to do any of the actual gathering because he really will do more harm 
harm than help. He's really just going to get in the way. So instead, they tell him that he's going to protect them, protect the gatherers while they work, and he'll kill any game that comes by. So they give him a weapon, and this weapon is pretty cool. It's pretty interesting. The narrator comes to think of this as a club bow because it is a projectile weapon that has some properties of a sling and some properties of a bow, at least if I'm understanding it correctly, right? Because, you know, Wolf is the engineer here, not either of us, so I might be totally misunderstanding it. But at any rate, it projects short clubs at its target, and some of these clubs are studded with bits of rock or, or bits of bone. And clearly, they are thinking here, right? The women, the gatherers are thinking of the narrator as a child, a child who needs to be told that he's helping and doing something important when he is definitely not, right? All they want him to do is go stand over there so he won't be in the way. But it is going to turn out that he will actually do something useful because that's how stories work. But before we get to that, Wolf does a little fantasy world building here for us. Uh, The women and the narrator hike about three kilometers away from camp. Uh, The snow here is usually about knee high as they walk. Uh, The women's feet are wrapped in furs, but the narrators are covered by black synthetic boots. And the narrator pauses here to comment on the trees that he sees on their march. And he says that he doesn't remember how trees are supposed to look. But in any case, he knows that these trees don't seem quite right to him. Uh, But now that the women have found the field where they're going to gather food from plants, the, the story really gets going. Around noon, there's a a succession of piercing cries that comes from some nearby trees. Now, the narrator, of course, he does not attach any meaning to these cries, but the women, they go on alert and they just freeze and they are listening or or trying to avoid detection or, or really more likely they're trying to do both of those things at the same time. And then something emerges from the trees. And and here I just want to quote the text. My first impression was that it was a girl. My second, as it bounded up the slope towards us, using its front limbs freely to assist its speed, that it was an animal. My third, as I heard the high-pitched shrieks at close range and saw the length of its neck and the protruding formation of its lower face, that it was a bird. Now, the women want to kill this creature, and they're going to eat it later, and they chase after it, and they yell for the narrator to use his club bow, but he hesitates because this creature looks human to him. But in the end, he does shoot, and he disables it, and uh, this leaves the, the women to slit its throat. This is all pretty gruesome. There's a, a lot of gruesomeness in this in this story. And in the end, when he sees the dead body, he can't help but think of this creature as a woman, as a human, as a person. But the women do not see her as human. Instead, they call her a Lenazy doe, you know, doe as in deer. And that night in the settlement, they cook this Lenazy doe, who may be a human, And the narrator eats some of the the meat here because of peer pressure. But while the meat is tender, it doesn't really taste like anything to him. Yet, at the same time, the much smaller game that the men have brought back from their hunt, animals that are clearly animals, we can say, this actually tastes like something to him. And so, as you hinted at earlier, Brandon, we are back at the motif of cannibalism that we have seen in The Fifth Head of Cerberus and then, you know, more recently in The Hero is Werewolf. Uh, We're back at this question of who is human and who isn't and how can we tell and how do we make those distinctions? This is a really big theme of the story. Joan Gordon, who is a uh, critic and wolf scholar, believes that it is the theme of this story, and language is a part of this as well. We're going to see this picture sharpen as we continue along with Cutthroat on his journey throughout this world. I'm not sure at this point that any of the creatures, maybe with the exception of Cutthroat, just because he's separate, he's set apart from these creatures, I'm not sure that any of them are 100% human, including the people that he's with, the tribes. Um, But the narrator is experiencing an ethical crisis as he learns 
more about the food chain and the complex relationships between prey and predators on the planet. I mean, they talk to each other. And we're led to believe that the narrator is a human, as I said. And we see that this species, the Lenazi doe, is nearly human. And so are this tribe, who we don't have a name for yet, that we will get later. You know, Wolf has stated, again, in an interview with Joan Gordon, that this story, he feels, is a successful take on a totem story. And that the tribe that the narrator is now with and all the the other people that he encounters have their own animal designation. I'm not going to dig into that right now. That We're going to save that for the discussion. But one thing it could mean is that the tribes or peoples on this planet are representations of guiding spirits that are here to help the hero on his journey. And they have symbolic meanings. And, you know, it's just something to keep in mind. But this first encounter with the tribe that took him in a little bit like the in the Jungle Book, you know, like this is a set up straight out of the Jungle Book, that this first encounter with this other type of person that is outside of the tribe that brings in Cutthroat causes an ethical crisis. And I think we're going to see Cutthroat learning how to be an ethical or moral actor in this world and, and maybe taking on what it means to be a human being as well. And yes, that is the theme of the story. As I said before, also, Wolf is playing with inventions and possible inventions that primitive people or Stone Age people might have used. It's a fun part of the writing here. I think it's mostly fun for Gene Wolf as he's imagining in the story. The club, <laughs> the club bow, though, is the prime example we've seen so far. It, my understanding is like yours, Glenn. It's spring-loaded. Uh, somehow it's a cross between a crossbow and a sling. So it like, shoots objects out, these bows, the way uh, a crossbow might project uh, an arrow, but it put some English on them, so to speak, as my as my grandfather would say uh, in playing ping pong. And so the object spins around and it, it's almost like a like a bola or something like that. But it just hits people instead of wrapping around their legs. It's a very strange mechanism, but it's a neat invention for the story. But there's more we need to get to about this day <laughs> that, that we need to talk about. Yeah, we sure do. But this is something that Wolf really does enjoy doing. Uh, you know, I don't know if we'll ever cover this one. We'll have our Patreon supporters vote uh, on this batch when when we get there. But, you know, he's got this story straw that I will not spoil anything about it by saying that the premise of the story is what if they'd had hot air balloons in the Middle Ages? Uh, you know, because there's no reason they couldn't have. They had all of the technical ability to construct it and they had all of the scientific knowledge to understand the, the principles and invent this idea. It just didn't happen. But what if it had? This is clearly like an entire genre of speculative fiction that I think Wolf wishes he'd written more of, uh, and maybe he has written more of it than, I, than I'm thinking of. Uh, and it is an interesting idea. I tend, even though I am a historian, I tend not to think really all that much about the, the tools that people are using in a kind of counterfactual sense of what if they had had a different type of tool than this one? How would their civilization, how would their culture have, have changed? Uh, it's clearly a very fun exercise. I don't know. I might actually start doing this the next time I, I get to teach a you know sort of unit of, of prehistory, if I ever get to teach my beloved uh, first half of Western civilization again. But as you say, we do have more we need to get through in this episode because we are still only actually on the the, the second day of many days here. So we uh, we had best move on. So this incident with the Lenazi Doe, this does happen on the narrator's second day here. And there are a few other details that we should talk about before we move on to the third day, which is as far as we're going to get on this episode. Uh, when they are chasing the Lenazi Doe, the, the women run atop the 
the snow after her. But the narrator does not run like that. And he describes what he does as bounding. And, and here's what he says about it. He says, I said I ran. I should have said I bounded. I meant to run, but every step turned into a five-meter jump. And in the space of a few heartbeats, I had covered several hundred meters. And right, this is in the snow that is a meter deep, which we should add. So something is going on here. Uh, another detail that we should mention is that after they kill the Lenazi Doe, another humanoid creature appears at the edge of the wood. This is uh, another woman. And this one, so tall and powerfully built as to be almost a giantess. And she shouts at the women. Our narrator doesn't actually understand this speech, which is interesting because it is clearly speech. Uh, and in fact, this uh, this humanoid creature has a name, Katinsha, and she has a husband named Ketin. And these are just the masculine and feminine forms of the, the same word, whatever that word might mean. But the women also tell the narrator that Katinsha has a son, but he's gone away. And presumably that's because he's reached adulthood now that we don't get that spelled out for us. And they are hunters. It seems that Katinsha had actually been hunting this Lenazi doe in the, the trees. And she's angry that she lost out here to, to, to the women. And one final detail before we move on is that our narrator grows facial hair, but the people he is with do not. And they look at him strangely as he's developing five o'clock shadow here. And he sneaks away to use the latrine. But really what he's doing is sneaking away to use an electric shaver. I don't know. It might be a laser shaver or something. And he hopes that they'll just think it was all a trick of the light around the, the fire here at night. And so... The question that I've got now, Brandon, kind of going back to one that I've already posed to you is, now that we're at the end of day two here, what does this new information do for our growing understanding of Wolf's speculative world here? Uh, and maybe I should bring up those trees again, those trees that seemed not quite right. Where, where are you at now? What do you think is going on? Well, I'm really glad you brought up the trees again or, or invo invoked them one more time, because it's very strange to me that Wolf is using this tree image as this iconic image in the narrator's head, it seems as though Cutthroat has a sort of platonic image of trees, but the trees on this world seem off as though they are very near the trees he knows of in terms of form, uh, but there's just not something right about them. Uh, and I think that Wolf is, suggest is suggesting here an adaptation of what we'd think of as, you know, normal trees to this new world. Uh, so something is going on with the, the planting of a tree that's that's adapting. Something is going on with form and adaptation and new forms needed to survive in this world. You know, this bounding bit is also really interesting to me uh, because the first time I read this story, I thought Wolf was also doing a... Superman mythos. He was doing his own Superman story <laughs> and kind of combining it with the desert island uh, tropes. You know, we have a guy who ends up on an unfamiliar planet, uh, though it's the only one he knows or the only one he can remember, and he has superpowers. He can jump really far and high, and gravity's not the same for him, though he seems to be able to control it. You know, all, the, all this kind of stuff. But one thing I think is fascinating with this uh, bounding cutthroat is that bounding is also the word he used to describe the movement of the Lenazi doe. And so Wolf is is making a relationship there between these words that like the movement of the creatures doesn't designate them as animals if the narrator who we're supposed to take as human is making these same movements or using the same words to describe them uh, as though there's nothing uh, pejorative in using the word bounding to describe the movement of a creature. I think it's a great touch. I mean, to my knowledge, he uses the word 
twice in the story in this section. We also get naming conventions from the tribe. One of the women is Red Cloy, and we don't know what that means yet, though we're going to find out. And also Flashing A, another name with maybe unknown meaning or refers to some geological uh, mineral sort of thing. And, and some of these names will be revealed throughout this story. Though naming is a, a thorny part of the story in terms of interpretation. I'm also really glad, Glenn, that you brought up this bit about shaving. Cutthroat seems to understand that part of his survival, at least with this tribe, the tribe he's with, and maybe in the broader world, because he hasn't learned anything different or any better yet, is looking enough like the people that he's with not to be hunted. And instinctually, he's protecting himself from predation by shaving. And I think it's a great touch because Cutthroat can't really tell the difference necessarily, though he can in some levels, between what makes these tribes or peoples different enough to be worth eating. And, you know, that's going to be something that he has to learn about. And I love this moment of protection, of self-protection through shaving in order to continue to look like the people he's with. Yeah, the shaving and then the, the naming conventions here, especially Ketin and Katinsha, really threw me here. I, not maybe threw me because, in fact, they kind of reinforced my initial understanding of what the setting is, that we're, we're dealing with the real world here uh, at some point, maybe in our near future, and that something to do with the Cold War is important here because Ketin and Katinsha, this really had uh, sounded like Slavic uh, naming content, naming conventions here, where the, the feminine form of a name gets a cha or a ka or an especially an Inca type sound at the end of it. And so this to me seemed like, oh, okay, we're, we're definitely in the Arctic circle of the, the earth here. And uh, this is just some kind of dialect of, of Russian or some other Eastern European, some other Slavic language here. And the, the, the issue with the shaving is, you know, again, maybe, you know, we're thinking Inuit or, or laps here or something like that. But then it gets flipped around. We've got weird trees that don't look the way trees are supposed to look and this business with the bounding, the ability to run hundreds of meters in just a few strides, which clearly those details suggest that, no, we're not on Earth. We're on some other planet, right? Because gravity is different here, right? Clearly. And I think there's some other suggestions about that too, some other hints, right? The fact that he's able to use this weapon even though he's small and so on. Uh, And, you know, the trees, right? are trees of another planet. That's why they don't look like trees that he's used to. They're on another planet. But at this point, like, it was hard for me to kind of pick one of these to, to side to side with. Yeah, I mean, I think Wolf is doing an incredible job there. I, I too got the sort of Russian Slavic sense of these names. And, uh, you know, it's possible that Wolf has something like Siberia in mind in general as a setting uh, that he's he's using for this off-world adventure story um but the names here are all over the map we have names that sound as you said russian or slavic we have names that sound like they are you know first peoples and north american names uh we have all sorts of odd naming conventions going on here um from tribe names to names that in english refer to things in the world it's it's very strange uh and wolf is just really kind of playing on a big big playground a big sandbox in this story 
Right. And some of this is a, is a question of what's being translated and what's not, right? It, red cloy, presumably, you know, it's not actually the, the sound red that he's translating whatever their word for red is. And cloy just doesn't get translated because it doesn't have an analog in his indigenous language. But for some reason, then Ketin and Katinsha don't get translated, right? He actually just records the sound there. And so Wolf is playing with the subjectivity of language and and how we understand what words mean, how we understand what's a name and what's a descriptor of something here, which again also is something that he does in the Soldier series, which I'm very much looking forward to to doing, to really thinking about the way he plays with language there. All of this seems, although this is, is a brilliant story in its own right, almost sort of a, a practice uh, run, sort of playing, toying with these ideas he's going to really uh, work with in the, in the future. But uh, I think if we're, we're looking ahead here, I think let's go ahead and press on to day three of the narrator's recorded diary. And this is almost half the pages that we're covering today. But even though we have spent an inordinate amount of time on that first page, uh, which, you know, we often do, at least when I'm doing the recaps, I think we can actually move through this section here fairly quickly. So the leader of the women has uh, attested to the narrator's super speed and super strength, right? Apparently, as I said, he doesn't even really appear large enough to use this club bow. So they're impressed that he can do that. And because of this, and because the narrator brought down the Lenazi Doe, he is now regarded as fit for joining the men on another hunt, and this is going to provide the action for day three. The men tramp off through the freezing cold, mostly just getting small creatures that the narrator thinks of as snow monkeys, but eventually they come across the footprints of an extremely large man, and the, the narrator here is reminded of Ketan and Katinsha, uh, and this is a big deal for the group, and they get very excited to have a, a found prey of this size. They begin to sing uh, what the narrator describes as a rising and falling wail, and they break into a trot, uh, still staying on the surface of the snow. Uh, and this is something that continues to be difficult for the narrator, but eventually he's going to get the hang of running on top of the snow from these people. Uh, it turns out that this is not Ketan or Katinsha that they're hunting. It's, it's something bigger, something called Nashwonk. And this does, as you said before, Brandon, this has much more of a Native American uh, sound to it. Uh, we learn this detail here. We learn about Nashwonk in a, a conversation that the narrator has with the leader of this hunt is a man named Long Knife, uh, who's the son of Red Cloy, who's the, the, the leader of the, the women's group. And their conversation ranges across a number of topics, as most wolfish conversations do. This is how Wolf writes dialogue. Uh, most importantly here is a bit about the narrator's condition, which Longknife describes as an enchantment, right? He describes his amnesia as an enchantment. Uh, and it's good for the narrator that he's enchanted because it means that no one will kill him because, uh, and here I'm, I'm quoting the text at this point, because when an enchanted animal dies, the spell runs up the weapon seeking a new home. But, right, the, the narrator isn't an animal and he says as much. And to this, though, Longknife simply says... All animals will say that. Nashwonk will say it. Watch. And this motif of what defines a person versus an animal, this does indeed continue when they catch up to Nashwonk. In this conversation with Longknife, it also becomes clear that Longknife has his position as leader because he's the strongest and the fastest and also the best at killing. And he's wary of the narrator's strength and speed. And so there's uh, some alpha male nonsense going on here in their relationship. And this results in a childish display of speed and especially a childish display of skill running to uh, running atop the snow uh, display by long knife here. But then the narrator responds in kind. And I should say that childish is the narrator's word for this. Uh, he uses it both to describe long knife's move here, but also his own move here, right? He knows he himself is also being childish. But the result of all of this is that the narrator runs on ahead. He's bounding again, 
And that means that he encounters Nashwonk first on his own. Uh, And here's how he describes Nashwonk. Sitting in the very center of the path, in a massive high-backed chair of dark wood, was a man bigger than I had ever conceived that a man could be. Alone on a field of snow, Nashwonk and the narrator, they, they talk for a while, and this conversation really reminds me a lot of Bilbo and Smog. And the main point here is that the, the narrator claims that he's not hunting Nashwonk. He says, I don't hunt people. I thought we were after an animal. But this is a lie, at least sort of, because he'd seen the footprints, right? He knew they were after something humanoid. Uh, but still, it had seemed less culpable before he heard Nashwonk speak, right? And this is probably true of our own experiences as well. Speech is one of the qualities we would use to delineate between a person and an animal. And indeed, we learn here that Nashwonk is, you know, not uh, his personal name. That's a a name for the type of thing that he is, uh, but that he also has a personal name. Yeah, I mean, one of the names he gives himself is Mankiller. And that to me is very strange because it indicates or it's an admission that Nashwank or the Nashwank species or Mankiller or whatever uh, understand that the other species on this planet have some relative in common in the past. They're somewhat human. Uh, Nashwank, we learn, is also aware of the great sleigh and... It's just really disorienting in the early going of the story to figure out what's going on, which we've been trying to figure out as as we've been talking about this uh, over the narrative period of the last three days. Uh, what's going on with these different species and their technologies? But I, I want to return to this line that you alluded to with the personal name uh, and the species name that Nashwank understands. Longknife says to Cutthroat, quote, Longknife says to Cutthroat regarding, you know, Nashwonk or Mankiller that we have killed him often before. And it's an indicator that these tribes don't differentiate between individuals of the species and the species itself. You know, how many Nashwonks are there? Do they all go by Mankiller? Is that a name Nashwonk gives himself? Do they meet with one another? Is what What is going on here? It's remarkable what Wolf is doing with language and confusion of categories in the early part of the story. I also want to say that the title of the story kind of gets its name from this section, Tracking Song. You know, this is the first adventure of of Cutthroats, and it really sets up for us the structure of the whole novella. Even though Wolf hides it really well, we're going to be treated to a bunch of cutthroat tracking things throughout the rest of the story. Uh, and it's clear that he picks up some of his tracking skills from from this first tribe he encounters. Uh, and we'll have other moments of songs in the story, though this song is the song of a wolf howl on the hunt. And that's another th- detail that Wolf sort of buries in the way that you described uh, the song of these people, Glenn. So it's just a lot going on. I'm I'm in awe of Wolf in this story and what he's been able to do. Yeah, there was no way not to read that passage and be thinking of, about the epigram of the hero as werewolf, right? Where we've had these allusions to the Jungle Book, right? That clearly Wolf is thinking about actual wolves here in in some sense, especially if we're thinking about this this uh, this reading from from Joan Gordon, or I guess not a reading, but this interview with Joan Gordon where Wolf talked about totems, uh, thinking of these as as animal symbols, right? Yeah, there are definitely some wolf-like properties to this this group that he's here with as well. And yeah, you, you point out, and I'm glad you did that, that for, for Nashwonk here, right? He, he seems to be comfortable with the idea that that everyone is a person, everyone's a man, everyone's a, a human, whereas this group that 
that the narrator is with are not. They want to justify their killing of whatever they're killing by designating it an animal, by designating it as less than. Nashwonk doesn't seem to need that. Uh, I don't know if that's morally good or morally bad. I don't know if one of those is better than the other, but it certainly is a profound and significant difference that Wolf buries here in one word, basically, right? And that's just absolutely brilliant. Right, and it just adds to the sort of ethical journey that Cutthroat is on throughout this story, determining uh, whether or not he should take the lives of other creatures that are like him or not, whether he wants to be more like Nashwank. And and I think the smog comparison is brilliant here because it's a similar sort of thing. I mean, Nashwank is the king of the castle here, and it takes a lot to bring him down. Right. In fact, let's get to the bringing him down. Let's do this hunt. The The rest of Long Knife's hunting party arrives, and there's a, a pretty fierce battle here between them and the, the Nashwonk, between man, them and Mankiller, uh, who uses his chair to stab them, right? It has points for feet, which is also pretty useful in snow and ice. Uh, that also, of course, right, as we talked about, that's a bit of Wolf the Engineer thinking about, you know, how you would have a useful tool like this. And that aspect of Wolf, I have to say, is also all over this fight. There are a lot of technical details about the wind and about the use of the club bows and, and so on. Uh, we don't need to narrate all of that here, but we could just say that in the end, they get him. Though the Nashwonk seriously wounds one of the hunting party in the fight. And the narrator, again, plays a crucial role in the hunt, which continues to make him a rival to Longknife's prowess-based authority here. And this finally comes to a head later that night, after they've all feasted and gone to bed. Longknife comes to the narrator's bed and tells him that he has to leave. He's, he's kicking the narrator out of the group. He will, of course, be able to take his share of the Nashwonk meat with him, uh, because that's only fair. But he has to go. And Longknife presents this as a favor to the narrator because he says that the narrator's life's going to be in jeopardy when the winter gets really bad and as people begin to starve. Because at that point, then, they're going to forget the danger of the enchantment and they're going to remember that the narrator is not really a person. He's really an animal and therefore safe to eat. But we know. And the narrator knows that really this is about Longknife's need to be the best, his need to be in charge, right? That he feels threatened in his position by a sort of rival alpha male here. But the narrator doesn't want his share of this meat because it's more than he could possibly carry with him while he's walking. And so he makes a trade. And and, and here we need to pause. And uh, we've got to talk about another of the material aspects of this culture, another technology that Wolf has invented for his speculative setting here. These people use sleds. Uh, They use sleds with sails on them in order to travel when they aren't hunting, which is very cool and is going to become an important part of the narrator's journey. And it's really the sails that are the precious commodity because we've actually seen them already. We've seen the people already construct a sled from raw materials on a moment's notice, but the sails are something that they have to carry with them as they travel. That they can't just make on a moment's notice. And this is what the narrator trades his meat for. He trades his meat for a sled with sails so that he can try to catch up to the great sleigh and find his own people and maybe get his memory back and his identity back and his life back. And that's going to be the tracking song of the rest of the story. But this is where day three ends. And so I think this is where we're going to end our recap as well. And we'll, uh, we'll pick all this up next time. Yeah, I just have a few things to run through. One is I just want to mention that uh, this bit about the enchantment and how it's connected to the scar of or the birthmark uh, which is uh, another way that cutthroat thinks of it on the neck of cutthroat um, this is in robert borsky's mind in his essay uh, that 
talks about this story in the long and short of it called Snow White, Cain and Odysseus, the Three Fabula. This to him indicates that this is a sort of Cain story from Cain and Abel, the first murderer. Uh, so the name Cutthroat is a name for also somebody who might not just have had their throat cut, but be a cutter of throats themselves. Um, and, you know, this has to do maybe with the wandering of Cain that we see in the Old Testament. Certainly we're thinking about, we're not going to dig into that in this episode, but I did want to point that out because this is where we really get the uh, sort of myth or the lore of this tribe about enchanted peoples and what you can and cannot do with them. That is a command from God that anybody who kills Cain is going to have uh, what Cain's punishment is uh, way, way worse than he had it. So I just want to point that out here because it's an interesting thought and and we'll pick it up in the discussion. Um, But continuing along with what's going on in this section, the fact that Longknife is a rival of Cutthroats, Glenn, I think you pointed out this really well, it, it makes his warning to Cutthroat seem a little questionable. Longknife really just doesn't want Cutthroat to remain in the tribe uh, because Cutthroat would just continue to get good shares of the meat or something along those lines. And so many motivations are mixed into the dialogue between these two men. The wolf, because of the style he has written this story in, is just reporting it. And it's really up to the reader to glean all of this meaning and innuendo from the dialogue. And I think it's fantastic. We learn also of some of the customs and laws of the tribe. We learn a little bit of uh, Ketan as well. For for this first tribe that Cutthroat's in, eating the meat of man, which is what all the people refer to their own kind as, is forbidden. But it's not entirely out of the question, uh, as we learn, if starvation is on the line. And this bit about Cutthroat being enchanted is important here as well, because it may keep him safe for a little while. Um, there's some negative association with being enchanted, but as people get more and more hungry, they're more likely to do foolish things. And this goes along with Longknife's whole bit about, hey, I'm really doing you a favor here, getting you out of here. But it's also the way that Wolf buries the call to adventure in this story. Cutthroat isn't ready to just go out on an adventure. He's sort of forced out into it, which I think is a great little subversion of that trope. Yeah, I mean, it's not quite the level of uh, of having stormtroopers kill your uh, your aunt and uncle who are your foster parents, right? But it <laughs> right. is it is a good move to like really to really force to really compel your hero to actually go start his hero's quest, which is what we're going to get from here on out, rather than to 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 make it a choice to to sort of have an, a real call to action, a real summons in which we're asking them to step up to sort of choose to be a hero. Uh, because then, of course, we love to narrate the sort of anguish about not really wanting to be a hero, but but feeling. Feeling like you have to go do this thing. We don't. We don't have to get any of that here because it's all necessity. And I think that is a is a is a better move. I, I agree. Uh, we also get a little information here, though, about Cutthroat and where he's come from. Longknife tells Cutthroat basically that they believe Cutthroat is an outcast from the people of the Great Slay, and we get a sense that the people of the Great Slay are automatically given and and bestowed a kind of reverence by the people of Longknife's tribe. And we're left with this question, really, at the end of the third day, you know, why was Cutthroat an outcast? And really, was he one even at all? Or is this just what Longknife is saying to motivate him to leave the tribe? And we have to keep all of this in mind as we continue on. But we know in any event that 
it's time for Cutthroat to move on and for us to move on as well. So that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of the first three days of Tracking Song. And if you'd like to help us reach those new Patreon goals, please check us out at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. Really, we, we'd love making podcasts for you. We'd love to make more podcast episodes for you. Next time, we're going to be back with part two of Tracking Song. We're going to read up to page 192. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>